cutting the north off the way it was done last week is nothing short of a national tragedy, particularly in economic terms, for the north of England. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Bomber, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews across the world of transport. And with me is my co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades studying policy developments in transport. Hello, Christian, and a very warm welcome to our listeners for the Calling All Stations 2023 Party Conferences Special, which we are recording immediately after the speech to the Labour Party Conference in Liverpool by Louise Hague MP, the Shadow Transport Secretary. But we'll be coming back to Labour a little later on, because first of all, we need to talk about last week's Conservative Party conference in Manchester, at which you and I, Christian, were both present. Indeed. And look, I know, you know we don't try to be too partisan in this uh, broadcast. We are Labour supporters, but we try and give the other side a fair hearing. But we struggle this week uh, to do that uh, about the Tory party conference because there were two key aspects and I think both of them were pretty disgraceful. So we had, first of all, we had the plan for drivers and a cold emphasis on that. And then, of course, we had the HS2 uh, announcement. But let's start with the plan for drivers. Yes, Christian, what do you think is so wrong with the Conservative government's plan for drivers. <laughs> yes, okay, one could say, oh yes, a plan for drivers, great idea, whatever. But the trouble is it's just framed in the in the uh, notion of being part of uh, the culture wars. And that's really what is uh, unfortunate. Yes, of course, one could you know support a whole lot of things that might kind of support uh, drivers, make the roads safer and uh, uh, more easy for them to drive about or whatever. But this isn't about that. So this is a, a kind of uh, a rag bag of measures uh, that really are rooted in the fact that uh, the ULES charge was deemed to be the reason why the Tories won the uh, Uxbridge by-election. So, and also uh, the fuss uh, in Wales uh, about the 20 mile an hour zones across the board in residential areas. And the Tories have seen this as an opportunity so they have piled in on uh, this by saying, well, local councils will not be allowed to impose blanket uh, 20 mile an hour zones. Uh, you know, they'll only be able to do it in specific areas around schools or whatever. But, you know, we're going to keep an eye on uh, them to make sure that they don't kind of uh, overreach themselves on this. Um, they then have this attack on 15 minute cities uh, and uh, towns and that's this notion put forward by transport planners about the idea that you really want to have all facilities uh, as near as possible and within 15 minutes walking or, or cycling of your house and this has been then translated into by the by the Tories into the idea that councils are not going to let people out of their houses uh, except for 15 minute journeys or whatever. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, should get up at the full Tory party conference hall and start decrying these 15-minute 
cities when they are, of course, uh, nothing of the, of the sort. And then another part of it was that um, they're going to stop the idea that Labour will force people to share their cars and uh, uh, travel together when, again, there are no uh, such uh, plans. But in a wider context, Mark, I think what's wrong with this is that it, it's just a kind of ragbag of policies that have no coherence and which reverse a lot of the good things that have happened over the years. There's been a consensus broadly that it's not a good idea that you know cars uh, absolutely dominate the whole planning environment and, and the whole uh, planning uh, of towns and cities is based around cars and that that's what really has the move has been against and yet this has been uh, attempt to really reverse that and go back to kind of 1960s style planning. But the, the Prime Minister would say that the vast majority of journeys in this country are undertaken by private motorised transport, whether that's cars or vans or, or lorries. The economy is utterly dependent on those vehicles and that there's been a kind of lazy liberal consensus going back uh, several decades now that's tended to see the users of those vehicles as some kind of plague on the land and that everybody should be forced into active travel travel or sustainable travel modes like uh, uh, public transport, buses, uh, trains and so on. So, so do you think he has a point here? Well, uh, look, we, we have a situation where for the nearly 100 years uh, planning has favoured uh, car use and, and uh, for example, you know, there are new estates built these days that really have no access other than by car. And sometimes they don't even have pavements. Um, and in uh, residential areas, we've had a situation where thanks to uh, basically sat-navs and uh, people kind of taking to their cars for, at every opportunity, you get people zipping through kind of residential areas when actually they should stick to the main road. So reversing those type of uses of vehicles is not a war on motorists. It's merely a more sensible allocation of uh, road use and available space. And indeed, people want to, don't want to live in areas that are very heavily trafficked. They want to live in uh, areas where uh, you know they can breathe easily, they can walk out of their houses without kind of uh, being uh, threatened by being run over. Interesting, in Liverpool, in the last two days, I've stayed in, next to one of these dual carriageways that was actually built in the 20s, 30s, and then those days had a tram going down the middle, and now it's just a kind of parkway and trees uh, in the middle. And these cars zip along at 40, 50 miles an hour, and you're living right next to that. And that's not something that is desirable. So it's not, it shouldn't be framed in the idea of it's cars versus people. We should think about towns and cities being oriented towards uh, making people's lives better and the cars have to kind of fit into that and I think that's the difference in philosophy. And another illustration of uh, reasonably uh, modern uh, historic, but historic uh, public transport infrastructure being ripped out uh, in the, the 50s and 60s to make way for, for, for road vehicles. Christian, that was the position on the plan for motorists. But of course, the other big news at the Conservative Party conference was the cancellation of the remaining sections of HS2 and the publication simultaneously of the Network North plan. 
What's your take on that? Well, where to start with this, Mark? First of all, we've had this uh, ridiculous charade for the last three weeks of uh, before the Tory party conference of the party and all the, the, the ministers saying, uh, this is just speculation, you know, about HS2, the future of HS2. It's just speculation. In fact, it was speculation that was generated by the fact that there was a photograph of, uh, um, of uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt carrying a, a document that suggested that, you know, this was on the agenda of kind of rethinking HS2. But anyway, um, and they denied all this and said, oh, no, it's all speculation. We haven't made a decision. So and so and blah, blah, blah. And really, all they were doing was kind of waiting for uh, the speech to give Richie Sunak a, a kind of real uh, focus for his speech. But that's very weird in itself, actually, because, you know, the, the speech was in Manchester and the, the big announcement was going to be cancelling a train to Manchester. So I don't know who his PR advisors were anyway. And I don't know why they didn't come clean much earlier than that and say, yes, we are going to reconsider HS2 and then maybe announce this raft of measures to replace them, which would, would have been a kind of positive spin. But anyway, so uh, we waited uh, for this speech. We knew it was coming and, you know, they have indeed scrapped uh, the Birmingham to, to Manchester leg. But then something even stranger happened, Mark, which was this document called Network North, which suddenly appeared in a 46-page a document. It clearly hadn't been produced the night before. They clearly worked on it a while. And we later find out indeed that the video that uh, Sunak put out to accompany this had been filmed on September the 21st. So the, the decision had been made at least two weeks before the conference that this HS2 announcement was going to be made. And the Network North uh, document was quite extraordinary because Sunak got up and, and spoke about what sounded quite an impressive bunch of projects. But as you know, uh, lots of these projects have subsequently either fallen apart or, or uh, were really never going to be considered properly um, or had already been built um, or were rehash of existing projects. And what's more, out of the 36 billion that was billion that was allegedly saved by this, uh, a third of it has gone on roads. So it's not really a, a, anything like uh, a coherent plan for the North. I think some of the aspects of the HS2 cancellation are worth dwelling on as well because of course there was a huge concentration on the fact that the line was being scrapped between Birmingham and Manchester at the very time the Conservatives were holding their conference in Manchester as you've said but of course there was the also the scrapping of HS2 East which was the section that would have run from Birmingham to East Midlands Parkway, which received much less attention. But in a sense, uh, uh, more positively, and something you'd called for, there was a pledge to complete HS2 from Old Oak Common to Euston. Uh, well, half-hearted, Mark, half-hearted, because uh, when, when we, we, we saw that, when we saw the detail, and a couple of days later, it emerged that they said, well, the private sector has to lead that. And how that works is really an open question because uh, you know the private sector built some housing there but that's not really going to fund a station that costs four billion plus uh, maybe another four billion for the tunnels to get there eight billion is kind of a reasonable sum to assume uh, that this will cost even at scale back uh, Houston will cost a lot of money so uh, even that was pretty uh, half-hearted but then it got worse Mark it actually got worse because that only 
earlier uh, this week, Rishi Sunak let slip, I think possibly inadvertently, that actually uh, this was not kind of a, a clear list of projects that were going to be built, but it was just illustrative of the sort of projects that is £36 billion, which is now only uh, 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 only 28 billion available for the railways and then 12 billion has already been earmarked for uh, the Manchester uh, to Liverpool or somewhere we're not quite sure where possibly Manchester Airport kind of uh, high-speed line bits to connect with Northern Powerhouse so there's not much left anyway and then this is just illustrative it's not kind of a real list of projects and we now know that this list was compiled by Andrew Gilligan, the former uh, transport advisor to Boris Johnson, a real fervent enthusiast for rail, but an anti-HS2 uh, campaigner. And it was he sitting in number 10, along with a few other special advisors, who actually drew up this list, which very much looks like the back end of a, a, a fag packet effort, because there's so many mistakes in it, like, for example, promising a tram link to Manchester Airport, which has actually had one since 2014. So uh, the whole thing has really pretty much fallen apart. And, you know, there might be some projects like the uh, North Wales electrification, which might be welcomed uh, by some people and might actually, some of it might see the light of day, but it's very unclear. And they, they basically said, you know, that uh, this needs the usual business cases, it needs the allocation of money and so on. So really, um, it's pretty thin gruel and uh, a bit of a deceit uh, that they promised that all this money will be spent. What's more, it's not even going to be spent till 2029 at the earliest and, and in the decade after that. Nevertheless, as we said in our previous episode, for those of us interested, fascinated by transport, who've always wanted to see the issue moved up the public agenda and into the higher level of public consciousness that's certainly happening isn't it as a result of all of this and the, the conservative conference was dominated by transport related issues and and announcements uh, absolutely and uh you know that's good news for our podcast and it's uh, uh, certainly a lot of listeners have uh, been tuning in thanks to that i'm uh, at a very buzzy uh, Labour conference and I thought I'd catch up with Henry Murison who's uh, the chief executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership and of course uh, a long-time campaigner on HS2. So uh, Henry, let's start off with the obvious and say you know what was your feeling about the decision and why do you think it came about? So I mean, it, I mean cutting the North off the way it was done last week is nothing short of a national tragedy, particularly economic terms, for the north of England. Um, I think what's happened in the last few days is that the kind of the thirty pieces of silver, <laughs> so uh, so the the kind of uh, the network north plan. I'm not sure that's a name that's going to stick, largely because as a chart in the document shows. <laughs> not even about half of it is actually in the north. No, um, and they showed they showed Manchester and Preston. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I don't think the name's going to stick. But anyway, right. whatever you think of the branding, yeah, the challenge is that what's being given in return, mostly the, the only things we would really welcome wholeheartedly, 
were things like Hull and Bradford that were cut out of Northern Powerhouse Rail back in the integrated rail plan when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor. But then we did also very vociferously actually welcome the Leam sideline, which people remember was in the ill-fated strategic outline business case that Transport for the North produced, but that never saw the light of day. But some of us did see it, and I know full well that the funding for a freight line equivalent line was in the SOBC. And DFT in the the strategic outline business case that we never saw. And when I saw on Wednesday that this was in the documents that were being published. I just assumed that the first thing that the officials did at the Department of Transport, the special advisors did, which was not a stupid idea, was go through the things they'd knocked out of the integrated rail plan because they couldn't afford them and put them back in. Because they always said the reason that they didn't do them wasn't because they didn't want to, but because they didn't fit within the 96 billion. Now, we've kind of learned since that the 96 billion is all a bit fictitious, right? Because a lot of that money's ended up going on roads. The vast bulk of the 96 billion was always on phase one of HS2. And as you and I agree about, we, we don't agree about all of this stuff. The one thing that everyone thinks isn't a particularly good use of money is phase one between London and Birmingham. Supposedly that was for our benefit because we would get phase two that would allow us to use it. Well, we now know that isn't true. So actually what we've really learned is that the integrated rail plan that Boris Johnson offered us was never worth the the paper it was written on. It'll never come to anything. Because more than half of that was supposed to be for phase one, was for phase one, finishing phase one. And we're now not going to be able to use that. Or, sorry, shorter trains with less seats from Manchester will notionally be able to use it. But I think it's very unlikely that those 200-metre trains will ever get to Manchester because it just makes no sense to, the to cause the issues that you'll cause for the rest of the network. And the Lemside line, of course, you didn't finish on. It, it, it got scrapped within uh, Yes, within well, I, I mean, I'm not very good at telling jokes, am I, Christian? Because I didn't even get to the punchline. Right. So on, on Leamside... I got, so, I got so excited about my strategic outline business case, I forgot my punchline. On that, within 24 hours, it disappeared. And what the government said, and Mark Harper said on the Laura Koonsberg programme when he was being interviewed uh, by Victoria Derbyshire, was that, but the local mayor will get, will get, will get local funding for, for and could spend it on this. But what that ignores is the fact that when DFT offered us Leamside before, in principle, when we were negotiating about uh, the previous integrated rail plan, it was always the case that national rail funding would pay for the equivalent of a freight line opening, but any electrification, any pantographs required for the metro, any platforms, that would all have to be funded locally. The idea that you would fund the whole of essentially what is a freight diversion out of money that's designed to get people out of their cars and help people commute into Newcastle is not the way it's supposed to work. And the fact that Mark Harper goes out and defends this either proves that he doesn't really understand the history of how all this has happened. Because, I mean, the sad thing is, Christian, I've been out of this so long that, I mean, Chris Grayling's still a a recent Transport Secretary to me, and I was sad to see his news this weekend. Because, actually, of all the Transport Secretaries I've dealt with, I actually would say that Chris Grayling was the most straightforward. Yeah, and also... He was always absolutely... He was was always straightforward. He was always honest with me. And he took on board the very negative feedback he often got in the north of England. And it was him, obviously, that commissioned the Williams Review into rail. It was him that actually really put Bradford on the agenda for Northern Powerhouse Rail. So a time when I've got very few friends left in the Conservative Party, I suppose at least I've still got Chris Grayling No, I think there's an important point here, that Chris Grayling was actually somebody one could do business with. He understood, he was engaged, and compared to... Uh, the present lot I, I think he was uh, uh, much much better and obviously the current rail minister right I do have a lot of time for for Hugh uh, and I think he has done his best 
But the challenge that Hugh faces now is that he he has to deal with the un unwinding of all of this, right? That the credibility levels and the trust levels with government in the north of England are at rock bottom. Do you mean nobody believes a word that's in that Network North document? I mean, and if Hugh we knew had actually been behind the policy, maybe we'd believe it more. But it's very obvious that him and Mark Harper knew very little of this plan until Andrew Gilligan had already written it. And I think that they, I would... You're this moves on. convinced Andrew Gilligan wrote it. Absolutely convinced, yes. yeah. Well, it didn't so make I'm any right. sense, yeah, and yeah. it was it was all put together on the back of a fag right. packet. So those are all classic Andrew Gilligan right. uh, hallmarks. And I think the thing that is now going to be very interesting is that the government has said it's going to reflect on what it does about the hybrid bill for phase 2B. And this is the next big choice for government because the hybrid bill to get from Manchester to Crewe isn't just about HS2. That line between Manchester Airport and Manchester Piccadilly is the first phase of Northern Powerhouse Rail. Yeah. And so what becomes really important is, as a litmus test, right? So I don't particularly think Network North adds up to very much. But the stuff I am excited about in it is all the bits of Northern Powerhouse the Rail. The 12 billion. The 12 billion to get from Liverpool to Manchester. Although the maths for that 12 billion, how they came up the figure of 12 billion, that's a, we could do a whole separate podcast right. on that. But that's the commitment to a Bradford to Huddersfield new line, the commitment to uh, electrification Hull to Selby, which could be done quite quickly. Because remember, that's been business cased up more times than I've hot dinners. So it's, it's pretty much ready to go. So when you look at the things that the government can do to show credibility, it can get on with whole Selby electrification. And most importantly, when it comes to the King's speech, it needs to reintroduce that bill. Because if it kills the hybrid 2B bill and decides not to reintroduce it, that could put the cause of building Northern Powerhouse Rail back up to seven years. Because you have to start again from scratch. Hybrid bills are not, as you know, Christian, your listeners, I mean, this is an informed audience. They know that hybrid bill process is not a, a walk in the park. So if you throw away all the work that Andrew Jones and the committee, sorry, that uh, Andrew Percy, getting my Yorkshire Conservatives mixed up, if, if, the, if the committee has all its work thrown in the bin and has to start again, there's no way we'll make any meaningful progress before the general election. And remember, you also would have to compensate all those people who have spent money on it. So lots of people have had lawyers, parliamentary lawyers, working on their behalf, business people, landowners. And they'd have to compensate. And, and they'd have to give them a cost order. So it would cost many... It would, I mean, one single one could be a million each, right? At least. So if you want to think about the kind of the politics and the sensible good governance of all this. Of course, there are people who argue about whether it's a good idea to sell the 2A land before anyone's proved that the West Coast mainland actually can cope with these HS2 trains. That's another debate. But on the Northern Powerhouse Rail issue alone, there is a very serious problem that if the government pulls the bill, there will be no sign that they're actually genuinely committed to any of this. And the line that Andrew Donis used, I think I've sort of parroted it slightly, kind of the concept of a fairy tale, maybe it's a little unfair, but it certainly wouldn't be unfair if they'd cancelled the hybrid bill, because then what evidence would we have that they really are serious? Because I don't think we'd have any. So but by not cancelling the bill, they're, they're, does the bill not commit them to doing things that they're not going to do? So the, uh, the thing about hybrid bills is you can, you can ask for powers to do whatever you like, doesn't mean you have to do it. Ah, uh, so right. it's not like for your listeners, the Settles right. of Carlisle Railway, where right. obviously people remember that story. Right. The bill was obtained to Parliament to go ahead and they were forced to go ahead because they right. got the bill. Yeah. The, the hybrid bill process isn't quite as unfair to oh, the right. HS2 Limited and to the government as that was to those developers. So you could build... Uh, the railway would give you powers... The powers would be to go all the way to Crewe. If you choose to stop at Manchester Airport because you've run out of money, nothing's stopping you doing that. And I imagine there are still enough 
uh, and there's still enough time in the process to make sure the passive provision to enable you to then get to Warrington, which is the next part of the route, could be included as, as it was always intended to be, right? Because when this was going to be an HS2 rail line, an HS2 built tunnel, the line was always going to carry on to Warrington for those MPR services anyway. So in a weird way, nothing has really changed, actually, um, in terms of what's really required. And I think for government, because they've said next summer that they will take away the safeguarding on 2B, obviously they're saying they're going to take away the safeguarding much sooner for 2A, but obviously that could end up in the courts. On 2B, there's nothing to stop them taking the safeguards off south of Manchester Airport. If, that, if they want to do that before the general election, to make it impossible for Labour to reverse it. Even still uh, continue with the hybrid bill. Yeah, but, if you, but you can take more powers than you actually intend right. to use. I mean, when the legislation was introduced, they did intend to go further. And clearly, many of the landowners may legitimately expect that there is always the chance that this government could change its mind. They've changed their mind quite a lot on HS2. So I think there's an element of current government policy is not to fund the rest of HS2. It is not impossible that somebody else in the future might come along and say, well, we've rerun the figures, the Office of Budget Responsibility have said that actually we've finished HS2 because it would be the cheapest bit, right, between Manchester Airport and Birmingham. Actually, that would reduce the deficit, make sure that the cost-benefit ratio for phase one, which is now terrible, isn't so bad. Because obviously, if you look at the, the now at the value for money of between the kind of Wormwood Scrubs to Curzon Street line... Aston to Acton. Is Aston to Acton. I mean, you, you've been a very effective critic, ironically, of the government's position. Whilst I mean, it's probably easier in many ways as an HS2 sceptic to fundamentally distangle this policy whilst I'm probably too too interested in care too much about HS2 to really see the idiocy of the decision making itself and what that would do is allow uh, future governments a bit of choice because the problem is what definitely doesn't stack up is running shorter trains to Manchester as was highlighted in the Sunday papers yesterday with less seats with no more frequency that would mean that HS2 would actually reduce capacity on the west coast main line and I just don't think that's a credible position. So uh, the, the, the bill, uh, the section to, uh, from Birmingham to Manchester is actually enshrined in legislation. So can they just not do that? that you, so my understanding is that there will be a vote in Parliament on cancelling HS2 at some point. There'll also be a decision made about reintroducing the hybrid bill. In many ways, the decision to cancel HS2 by the government, because they're going to be subject to legal challenge anyway... Right. It's not that important, Christian. Do you mean because, as we've seen, the, I think it was the Attorney General gave advice to Cabinet that this was going to cost hundreds of millions in the courts. It was going to get quadmired for years. I don't doubt the Attorney General's probably right, and there are lots of interested groups, right, particularly environmentalists, right, who are concerned about all the extra roads that can be built, who will, who, who, who want to thwart Network North, right. not because they particularly loved HS2, but because they. They're more worried about the alternative right. because of all the extra road building it will yeah, necessitate. Yeah. So, and it's the Andrew Adonis argument. And I don't always uh, parrot Andrew's arguments on everything because I know he's not necessarily a universally popular figure. Um, but on this question, he's absolutely right. Do you mean HS2 is the equivalent of an 18-lane motorway between Birmingham and Manchester? There's a lot of environmental groups who can be worried about the equivalent of 18 miles worth of mo- 18 lanes worth of motorway being built all over the North West and the West Midlands. And the fact that the Northern Quadrant money, obviously half a billion, has been notionally allocated to a road scheme, the detail on that was reduced, actually. It's another thing that sort of disappeared. There were two motorways, Midges of Greater Manchester, just like the Leamside line, they sort of went away. But the environmental groups have got the original screenshots right, and they'll be thinking to themselves, wait a minute, 
are we really going to let the government build all these extra roads, take all this money out of, do you mean, railways, when that would have potentially got lots and lots of uh, freight off the road network, reduced emissions, and that there's also the ecological damage from building all these extra so, roads. So you think there'll be legal challenges? I think the government expects it, and I mean, it's not my place to legally right. challenge the government. I'm a, I represent the business community's interests, and we will, we will simply make our points in the public sphere and argue for what can be done in Parliament. But I think judicial and... Uh, extra parliamentary measures will absolutely be used by others um, and many people have already approached me to say they're considering legal challenges because obviously they know I'm interested in the topic uh, and ask for my advice. You, you, can't, you can have a legal challenge but you won't still have the money to build it. Well I think it's interesting isn't it that the money to build it is all actually in the future. Yeah. So these are not. This is not Rishi Sunak's money. Right. This is the money of a future Chancellor in a few years time yes. um, and he's, he's just proved previous governments cannot bind their successors right so if if these schemes go through cost benefit analysis and have a good bcr then some of them might get built but some of these road schemes if we do succeed right in uh finding ways to get freight onto the railway using the limited capacity we do have well every time we get a few trucks off the road it reduces the business case building new roads so it's made it harder to do that now there'll be no hs2 but east to west there is significant new rail capacity and so in the case of the north of england we might be able to get enough roads off the enough lorries off the m62 to reduce congestion so that we didn't need to build those new roads so i think there is an element of the money isn't there based on the current government spending plans and what it said it would do if it was still in office i don't think a lot of people expect rishi Sunak necessarily to be prime minister in a year i think if i was going to a bookmakers do you mean i, I was chatting to the man from betfred outside the conference in in, in in manchester do you mean if i if i had been if i'd been a close friend of rishi sunak if i'd been his his wife who obviously is so convinced by him and she if i'd been her wandering the streets i could have got very good money do you mean on on the tories in the actual election because i'd be quids in if it happened so i think my reflection would be in the end last week was a political decision the long-term infrastructure of the uk depends on a historical consensus being built we don't yet have a consensus about what's going to happen next and so it's too early really to tell so, christian so what is the for you what is the least worse option out of this i mean what what is the the, the least worst situation so i think what we would like to see is the hybrid bill gets protected which is i think what hugh merriman probably in his heart of hearts would like to do anyway um, and he certainly reduced my blood pressure levels if, if, that, if, if we got an assurance relatively soon that was going to happen. Then you would get on with things like wholesale bill electrification to really demonstrate some good faith. Um, and that means having a discussion with the Treasury about why all this money is so far in the future. Which I mean, in the end, we're still spending money hand over fist on phase one. Well, why on earth do we have to wait in the north of England so long to get any of the, the jam that's supposedly going to be spread and all this large S? So I think my, my reflection would be it's going to require the Treasury, if they want people to take this seriously, to have people out putting up pantographs in Yorkshire sooner rather than later. And that's always I say to people is, when people draw lines on a map, I'm always very suspicious, because it's very easy to draw lines on a map, as you know, as you know Christian. What we really need is consented projects and upgrade schemes that are actually starting in the immediate future and that have guaranteed funding attached to them. So, as, as we're at the Labour Party conference... What would you like to see the Labour Party say about that? So I think uh, Labour are very committed to Northern Powerhouse Rail. And so despite the fact that both parties are now refusing to support finishing HS2, because obviously Labour are essentially following in all but name Conservative spending plans, 
What you're then looking for is who's the most credible people to build Northern Powerhouse Rail. And what's interesting about the Labour Party position is they've not done a vault fast on Leamside, they've not done a vault fast on Bradford, they've actually not done a vault fast on Hull Selby Electrification. Because when the integrated rail plan happened, they all stood and said, we won't accept that either. Um, so there's an interesting counterpoint, which is lots of Conservative MPs, I'm sure, would love me to be here this week giving the Labour Party as tough a time as I gave them last week in Manchester. And the point is I'm not here uh, to make Conservative MPs uh, toes tingle. Bluntly, if the Labour Party is offering more with more credibility than the current government, it's very hard for me or any other lobby group to criticise the position Labour are taking. If the Conservatives want me to give an incoming Labour government, as it could be, a harder time, they need to start demonstrating that what we saw last week really isn't a fairy tale and is something much more meaningful. But so we don't have a commitment from Labour. Would you not like to see some commitment from Labour to some of these projects? So they are committed to Hull and Bradford because right. they're committed to everything in the in the plan that was announced last week, notionally. Leamside's obviously a bit complicated because we don't know if it really was in the plan last week. But because they've been committed to those things consistently, they've never changed their position. So I would argue that if Lou Haig has been saying to everyone that she's going to build Leamside since March, do I believe Lou Haig or do I believe the Transport Secretary who's been against doing it and then was in favour of it when it was published on Wednesday and then against it when his, rail, his roads minister went on local radio and then on question time on Thursday evening in Wolverhampton. So I'm always keen to give both political parties, main political parties, the benefit of the doubt when I can. I'm minded to do that with the Labour Party this week because I think the things they're saying they are going to do, they do seem to genuinely be committed to. The problem is, as much as I like Hugh Merriman, I don't trust the people in Number 10 who wrote this plan. And it's going to take a lot from Number 10 side to prove to me and others that they genuinely are wanting to behave better than they have up till now. OK, well, thank you, Henry. That's an absolutely great uh, uh, interview you, and very fascinating. Thanks. Cheers. Christian and I have just come from the conference hall at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool where a keynote speech was delivered by Louise Haig MP who is the Shadow Transport Secretary. We'll put the link to that speech onto our Twitter or X account so that listeners can see it for themselves. But uh, to give you a few highlights, uh, quite obviously Louise Haig talked about the HS2 fiasco and then picking up on the theme of the uh, needs of motorists interestingly she has announced today a plan of action on petrol and insurance costs which we haven't had a chance to analyze yet but uh, which we'll endeavor to source and also put onto the twitter account she then went on to promise the biggest reform of public transport in more than a generation with public control of buses and said that one of the first acts of a Labour government will be taking back control of the bus networks, as has begun to happen in Greater Manchester recently, and, and lifting the ban on public ownership of bus companies by local authorities. Turning to the railways, she cited the praise, the skill of Britain's railway engineers and said they were not responsible for the chaos in construction in particular relating to HS2. Uh, she's promised an independent inquiry into what went wrong with HS2, which has also been announced by the Shadow Chancellor. 
She did say that uh, she didn't uh, pledge that Labour would build HS2 in full, although there has been some pressure for that at the Labour Party conference, including a motion being passed along those lines. But Louise Haig did say that uh, NPR, Northern Powerhouse Rail, would be delivered within Labour's fiscal rules, whatever that means. Turning to the rest of the rail system, she said uh, that the rail model that we've had since the 1990s is at the end of the line, and Louise Haig promised to overhaul the system entirely. To a standing ovation, Louise Haig said that a Labour government must and will bring the railways back into public ownership, uh, which was a pledge made last year and reiterated at this conference, uh, despite uh, a lot of campaigning by the train operating owning groups to kill off that policy. And she pledged that the railways would have a guiding mind but the transport secretary would be the passenger in chief. That was the expression used, who would be uh, giving the guiding mind its instructions, presumably on behalf of the passenger. Yes, I think uh, some uh, interesting uh, stuff there. I, I think uh, the, the argument over whether Labour will renationalise or not is over. I mean, it's clear that it, this has been reiterated several times. They've stuck with the policy and they are going to uh, definitely take over the railways. There is, though, Mark, still quite a lot of detail to thrash out exactly how this will work out. It's interesting she did not refer to Great British Railways. Um, and as we now know, there is not going to be any legislation to create Great British Railways. Uh, in the King's speech. From the present government. From the present government. So uh, what Labour ends up with there is hopefully something of a blank sheet of paper on which to create a new structure for the railways. It was slightly disappointing that um, Louise did not turn up for most of the fringe meetings where she had been invited. Um, so uh, she, uh, we were, nobody was able to kind of interrogate the Labour front bench, which now has uh, Stephen Morgan as uh, the rail uh, minister, the shadow rail minister, um, uh, as, a, as a replacement from Tan Desai. Um, so uh, we still are short of detail. And she did say at the one fringe that she appeared and the press association picked up that she was going to publish a radical plan for public transport. Um, but what form this will take in and uh, how it will be published and when, uh, we don't yet know. But I, I got the impression when talking to Labour people at the conference that uh, there, there is now a move to begin to flesh out some, some uh, further details and maybe over the next few months, remember this might be the last conference before a general election, so over the next few months, hopefully some idea precisely what they intend to do and, and who is going to be in charge of the railways will emerge. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, uh, since we're in Liverpool, I took it upon myself to uh, go and see some of the wonderful new trains they've got built uh, by Stadler, uh, a Swiss firm, which they're introducing uh, across the network. They're not all in position yet, but I remember seeing them about a year ago when they were in the depot. 
and they are a particularly wonderful uh, new train. They're absolutely uh, what you need for a suburban rail service. They're well designed. They tell me they're very well engineered, um, and they will really boost uh, Mersey Rail. Uh, the offer that they got uh, to uh, uh, local people and I think they will attract a lot more people onto the trains and uh, also as an innovation only this week they've uh, opened a station called Headbolt Lane and now the interesting thing about that of course Merseyrail is all electrics but to save money on actually extending the, the uh, third rail out to all various new stations that they might then add they've decided instead to put a battery on the train and so the train then uses uh, a battery for the last leg of its journey out to this new station and to come back and uh, that means that you don't have the expensive uh, addition of uh, putting down a new third rail which actually the the uh, Health and Safety Executive or the Office of Road and Rail as it is now doesn't actually allow for the moment for you for people to lay down extra third rail. They don't like the third rail. So this is a, a wonderful innovation and uh, an imaginative use of uh, battery technology. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.